It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. At present, the Church of Jesus Christ is under siege in North America. And the battle is a strange one. Like chemical warfare, the weapon being wielded against us is unseen, but lethal. It's an ideological battle where things like wearing a mask are now the new definition of love. And not wearing a mask is the new definition of selfishness, bigotry, and hate. Many churches all over North America are still not gathering due to state orders. Four months of dense fog have settled upon the body of Christ. The church is dizzy, vulnerable, and confused. Oh, and did I mention? And ripe for revival. Hey, this is Eric. Before we venture into today's Daily Thunder message and discuss the rise and fall of the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, I wanted to mention that we don't just have training programs happening this fall here at Ellerslie, but we also have scholarships available for these training programs. Our goal here at Ellerslie is not to let finances stand in the way of discipleship. So, if finances are standing in your way, we invite you to explore the possibilities that we are currently offering for overcoming those impossibilities. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to learn more. Okay, it's July 1943 and you are living in Italy. A great darkness is encompassed and is controlling your homeland. But as the old trope states, though darkness may persist through the night, the sun always rises in the morning. It's time for the Italians to wake up and return to their senses and pull Mussolini down from his ivory tower. We are... uh heading through a series on World War II, and we're pretty deep into it. Uh, World War II is going to start September of 1939 when Germany invades Poland. However, for those of you that have gone through this series, you know that actually it started long before that. The fact that it's going to delineate and there's going to be a declaration of war doesn't mean the enemy hadn't declared war already. There is an enemy that was raging in Europe and was claiming whatever territory it could gain. And the great problem in the 1930s was an appeasement, a work that feared the return to war. World War I was declared to be the war to end all wars. And so it made it very difficult for the Allies to even consider And the populace, the nations they represented, did not want war. One of the leading advocates towards the appeasement campaign was the church in that time. Many pastors were at the front lines of just saying, look, whatever we need to do for peace, we do it. And I'm going to say that we have an appeasement campaign today. We are paralleling the 1930s, where we do not want friction. So as a result, we are allowing an encroachment upon the church to actually dictate how we are going to function as the body of Christ, and not just talking about as a nation, but as the body, and we need to rise up. We need a little Churchillian, that's from Winston Churchill, by the way, a Churchillian response as opposed to a Chamberlainian response. Uh, that's Neville Chamberlain, response uh, to this. And it is very interesting. The more you study it, it is very easy for us to get into the mind of Neville Chamberlain. I mean, I really can. When I, when I was going through the 1930s and studying the arguments and the, I, I get it. I really get it because the Treaty of Versailles that's going to be, that's going to waylay the Germans in 1919 is an overreach on the part of the Allies. It is a it is a prosecution of, it is a declaration of guilt uh, on the, the German side, and they're going to be reprimanded in such a significant way that it devastates their country. And they're going to go through extreme crisis over the upcoming 20 years because of that, which Hitler is going to step in and be a rescuer from. And so what we've done is it's almost like we've set the stage for a crisis. But The response to evil is never silence. It's never appeasement. It is truth. It is righteousness. And so this message is going to be a very unique one, timely, and I can't even begin to enunciate how timely it is. I've been praying for a tactical plan to deal with what is taking place spiritually in the world right now. And very specifically, I have a heart for America, but that isn't just America. There is something that we're seeing that is spreading throughout the globe right now 
And it is different than just a localized spirit of the age. It is like something that is beyond just America. It's not just North America. It's like everywhere. And God, what is it that we're dealing with? And so, you know, I've pinned various things. Some of them are obvious, like fear. Okay, fear is an obvious opponent right now. Now, fear has always been there, right? It's not like that's a new opponent, but this is different. This is like a capital F fear that is creeping into culture, creeping throughout the world, and it's almost an irrational one where, uh, well, I shouldn't say almost, it is an irrational one where we are wanting to fear almost. It's like going in and watching a horror movie because you want fear. Where fear has become popular, fear has become hip, no fear, the lack of fear, the removal of fear is the great threat to our culture. And this is how it's being presented. So if you are audacious enough to not fear, you are problematic because fear is our safety, okay? That's weird, but that's real right now. So fear is one, lawlessness, rebellion. You see, it's interesting for us as Christians where we begin to feel an overreach of government, we can oftentimes want to snap back and sometimes we can do it out of the wrong spirit out of the same lawless rebellious spirit and so we have to measure that we can't respond in flesh we must respond in spirit and so what's interesting is for many of us as christians we actually need to push back and we need to say it is better that i obey god than man but that's not out of rebellion that's out of obedience to the most high god because that's who we serve, as I always say, our capital R rights. We have capital R rights because we are representatives of the kingdom of heaven. You tell me not to speak in the name of Jesus, sorry, I have a capital R right to speak in the name of Jesus, even if my lowercase r rights are removed. And so as a result, we're in this stage where lawlessness and rebellion is actually encroaching not just upon our culture, but upon the world. And okay, that's another one that we can tag. And delusion, deception, where plain spoken truth no longer is accepted. Now it's like, give me something that is a lie. I prefer the lie. Please, could you give me the lie? It doesn't matter if facts or data is laid out there. We would rather go against it. And so as a result, we say that we're following science, but we actually don't want science. We want an agenda. We want to fulfill a dream and that is to remove this from our culture. What is this? Well, it's sometimes hard to define what this is. Sometimes you just say it's Trump. Get this out of our world. And yet, what that is, it's something beneath the surface. It's this Judeo-Christian heritage that lingers still, and it is deemed threat number one. And so, Yes, I see that. It's a delusion and a deception where we are choosing Barabbas over Jesus. We are choosing a known murderer, that which would bring hell to our earth. Let's get rid of the police so we can have what? Utopia. That isn't utopia, by the way, guys. Lawlessness does n never has brought peace. It brings destruction. And so as a result, we have this very odd uh, super stew that we are all in the midst of right now. However, there was a prayer on Wednesday night during our prayer time, and uh, we have a missionary family from South Korea here, the Trink Lines, and Gretchen, you prayed a prayer, and it was hang Haman on his own cross. Hang Haman on his own gallows. Haman is going, Haman, a character who's gonna be in my message, because this has been stirring within me. Even when you were praying, I said, that's it. It's like my feet landed on it. This is our prayer. Our prayer is, yes, we stand against fear. Yes, we stand against lawlessness. Yes, we stand against this delusion. But very specifically, we're standing to see God do what God does best. He takes what the enemy means for evil, and he turns it against him. The enemy is overplaying his hand. He is overreaching right now. And as a result, God is ready to do what God does best. Hang Haman on his own gallows. And so as a result, there is a stirring inside of me. And so I was praying, God, give me something in World War II that, that matches that, because that's what I want to preach on. Here's what's funny. My next message that I had mapped out is called the fall of Mussolini. So this was waiting when I got back from New York to sort of prep uh, for today. 
And I, look, there is no manipulation on my part. I didn't come up with history, and this was the message that was sitting there. And guess what the theme is today? Hang Haman on his own gallows. Mussolini is an incredible picture of Haman. <laughs> he is, and he is, he is going to hang on his own gallows. And so this is like an extraordinary reminder to us as the body of Christ. So for me, the significance of this is very big because I feel like God is isolating out the prayer, the battle tactic for us, because that's what I'm after. As I look at the spiritual side as a military tactical thing. I need a strategy. I want to know, God, where you need me to hit because I have limited time. I have limited resource. I can't pray for every single human on planet Earth except for with those blanket prayers. God bless every human on planet Earth. But to name them by name, to name every squabble, every challenge, every difficulty by name, I, I, I don't have the capacity. God, give me the center. Give me the heart of what's going on, and I'm going to hit it with a spear. So as a result, I feel like there's something here that hits right at the center. Hang Haman on his own gallows, Lord. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against Haman's or Mussolini's. It's against spiritual powers that are operating right now. Our agenda our, our, as Christians is not against a liberal establishment. It's not against the leaders of Black Lives Matter. It's not against the LGBTQ community. It is against spiritual operations that are puppeteering people so that we can see them set free. We desire their salvation. We desire to see those that stand currently in a hostile position against us as a church. We desire to love them, to see them set free, to experience the, the grace of God upon their life. However, there is an operation that we want to see exposed and brought into the life. We want to see Haman, Haman hang on his own gallows. The fall of Mussolini. So there's our statement. Hang Haman on his own gallows. What's funny is the way I first said it, I said, hang Haman on his own cross. Remember when I said that? That was actually a, a misspeak because it's a giveaway of the whole message right there. That's actually my nice little turn at the end. But I'm not going to say any more on that. We'll just sort of hide that now off to the side. So the scheme. Uh, back in the, in the book of Esther, we don't know exactly the dates this is going to happen. We, we can give educated guesses, but it's going to be somewhere right in the reign of King Ahasuerus. Aso which is going to be in this 486 to 465 BC time period. Esther 5.14 is going to show the, I'm, I'm skipping through the story of Esther to just sort of show you God's providence at work, to show his manner and how he deals with this. His people have come under an edict Haman is the main culprit who hates the Jews. He hates one guy specifically, Mordecai, who is a Jew, and so he is scheming. He is scheming to destroy the Jews, and he has conned King Asuherus into signing an edict to destroy all the Jews, as if they're the great enemy of his kingdom. So this is speaking of uh, Haman. He's at home, and his wife Zeresh is going to say something to him. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made, 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. So we had the gallows made. There is a time in life and in the, in the passing of history where doors open up. There are certain groups out there, uh, legal groups, that are always looking for moments that they can pounce on, cases that they can play up. And there are different events that can take place, news uh, uh, events that will be sponsored with a greater measure, a greater bit of mustard to them because they play into an agenda. And so what we see is this scheme oftentimes awaits those moments. And right now is a moment in history where Haman is being played. He is, he's not really the grand enemy, it's the devil. But Haman is susceptible because Haman has hate. He has pride. He has selfishness. He has an agenda. He wants to be the ruler of this country, and that Mordecai does not show him respect. And so as a result, the door opens and the gallows are built. So in that moment when Haman is feeling rather cocky, you know, he's, he's high up, he has a position, he has a voice, 
He is going to build the gallows. So then we're going to see the awakening. And this is actually one of my favorite stories. This is, it, I, I, any of us that have gone through the book of Esther uh, really always find great delight in this fun scene. And so I'll just read it for you. It's Esther 6, 1 through 10. That night, the king could not sleep. So even that, I'm calling this the awakening. Isn't that perfect? He, he's, he awakens. I mean, Mordecai has saved his life, and he has forgotten it, or maybe even didn't realize it. Okay, so he's going back to the journals uh, of the kingdom, and he, he's, he has nothing else to do, right? So he reads this. That sounds very dull. But that night, the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Asuherus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now, when is this happening? This is happening. That, that next morning, Haman is planning on coming in and speaking to the king about hanging Mordecai on some gallows. I mean, this, and then God awakens the king that night. Accident? Mm -mm. This is God's way, which is why we need to recognize, though it looks really dark for the Jews right now, it looks really dark. I'm going to admit it looks very dark for the church right now. It doesn't seem like we have leadership. It seems like everyone's gone silent, and we're looking around going, well, aren't, isn't someone going to rise up and defy this and speak boldly? Right now, are we just going to take this? There's churches in Chicago that are being threatened to be bulldozed today because they are spreading a virus by gathering. Bulldozed. The city is thinking of bulldozing churches, not just one church, multiple churches, because in the law, in I don't know if it's just in that municipality, if there is a danger or a threat, it doesn't need any judicial process it can just be put down. Like if a dog is rabid, just shoot it. If a church is rabid, bulldoze it. That's actually how they're playing the law in this. Okay, now this is in our country. That is odd for many of us. However, that very night, the king can't sleep. Okay, in other words, something is in the God workings that you cannot see, we cannot see always. But God is a God that is sovereign. He is overall, he is not caught sleeping. He is wide awake the whole time. He sees what is taking place. So the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows and that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Isn't this good? What we see is a turning. We are seeing God bring about a stirring of something that is very malevolent and very evil. And he is going to take, these are ungodly people, and he is going to turn the tables before our eyes. And Haman answered the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one, the king's most noble, one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to honor the man whom the king delights to honor. Okay, now that, that's good, guys, because the next line, which I didn't put in here, is the king's going to say, that is a great idea. You take Mordecai and do that for him. <laughs> that is an extraordinary turn of events, an extraordinary turn of events. So then we, oh, then, maybe I do have it. I have it in here. Sorry, guys. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone <laughs> of all that you have spoken. Oh, that's great. The turning. So we have something very malevolent that has been set in place. And 
as far as we're concerned, on the human side, there's no way we can deal with this. If you're just a Jew hanging out uh, in this kingdom, I mean, you're, you're toast. What, what can you do other than trust your God? Now, we understand, and part of the story is that he has set Esther in a strategic position, right? But he, God himself, is orchestrating all of this. This is not just Esther that's going to save a people. The fact that Esther will be used by God, do you remember what Mordecai, Mordecai says to Esther? How do you know that it's not for such a time as this that you've been placed in that position? But if you do nothing, God will still bring about a salvation for his people. That's the same. God will do. Even if all the pastors in this land go silent, God still cares for his sheep. God still cares for his church. And so, the turning. Esther 6, 1 through 10. Then the king said to Haman, did I go backwards? Okay. Then Queen Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. So remember, she's had this banquet for the king and she invites Haman to it. And so the king is like, what do you ask? What would you request of me? And so she holds off and has another banquet and she's like building up this thing. And then she brings, she lowers the boom right here. It says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, which is... It's a hint, right? It's something. It's like, why would I need to protect your life? Why would I need to protect your people? For we have been sold, my my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Asuharis answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? I mean, this is great, guys. This is the turning of the tables right before our eyes, right here. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Now Harbinah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So what we see is an idea, a working of God. It has humor in it, I have to admit. It is so befuddling to an enemy where the enemy, Haman, is terrified before the king and queen. His plan has been exposed. What he meant for evil is actually being turned on him. This is a pattern. Now, this is going to be a foreshadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is exactly the same time of year, possibly even the exact same days that we are dealing with in this process of seeing the flesh. Haman is a descendant. He's an Agagite. The Agagites are Amalekites. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. Esau, the, the firstborn, the symbol of the flesh. There are two in Rebekah's womb that are warring. And the second will rule over the first. These two have been at enmity with each other throughout the ages. And Haman is an embodiment of it now. There is an antagonism that has always been there in this earth. Flesh against spirit. Firstborn against secondborn. The secondborn, the church of Jesus Christ. True Israel. That is the antagonism right here. We can try and complicate this and say this is a political matter. This is a spiritual matter. It always has been. It is a first and a second issue. And the second is a threat. But God will preserve that second. This is his way. A flashback to 1939, the Pact of Steel. Germany and Italy. Italy was an ally with Great Britain and America in World War I and uh, Russia. And you're going to see them, in a sense, betray Great Britain and France, I say France in there, no, France. Uh, They were an ally with France as well. They're going to betray Great Britain and France specifically in World War II, and they're gonna enter into a pact of steel with Hitler. Why would they do that? Why would anyone side with Hitler? That's a good question, I, I wonder the same. Why would churches and pastors in Germany 
sponsor Hitler. Well, you get something out of it. If you think that Hitler's actually going to win, then you're going to calculate on your little calculator, you know, it's like A plus B equals C, one plus two equals three. You know, you're going to figure it out and you're going to say, I'm going to go with Hitler. It's for self-preservation and you get power, you get territory if you do this. If you side with the potential winner and it's pretty obvious Hitler's going to win this thing. You see how quick France fell? He took anything Hitler has gone against, he has gotten. He took the Sudetenland, no one stopped him. He took Austria, no one quibbled. He took Czechoslovakia, they turned a blind eye. It wasn't until Poland that they started doing something. And yet every single thing he has taken, he has gotten. He's gone after, he has gotten. And so Mussolini is weighing these matters. He's an ally, but he is going to choose Hitler. He hates Hitler. That's what's funny. He hates Hitler. Uh, they're two little short guys. Uh, this guy's 5'7", uh, Mussolini is. And so you have these two little short guys. I always picture, there's part of me that wants to poke at that, but I'm not against short guys. But it's, it's just funny how dictators oftentimes are little teeny guys. Napoleon, uh, Hitler, Mussolini, they're all little teeny guys. It's just interesting. Uh, but there is something so malevolent about what Mussolini is doing. He, though he is allies with France and Great Britain, he's also jealous of them. He wants to be a world power. And Italy is always, there's an identity to these nations. It's very interesting. And Mussolini encapsulates it. Just like Hitler is going to embody sort of the attitude of the German people. Even though, yeah, it's not fair to say all of them are represented there. But there's vulnerabilities in it. Like Great Britain's had many bad uh, leaders. America has had some bad leaders. In other words, where the embodiment that comes to the stage actually represents the nation. And in this case, Italy's behind Mussolini. Loyally, they want territory. They want power. They want to take territory in North Africa, and they don't think the world should stop them. If they want to grow their country, let them grow. And so you're going to see this malevolence creep into Italy. So introducing Haman. His name is Benito Mussolini. He is, what's interesting is in World War II, he's going to be a second. He's under Hitler. He's not the guy. He's He's a second. He's like a Haman. And so in this situation, you're going to see him played just like Haman was. He's a very smart man, by the way, a very well-spoken man. And even though we're going to categorize him in history as an evil man, which he was not a healthy man, he was a very sharp character. And so a lot of times we just look at these evil characters as almost like being... Uh, blathering fools where they're just sort of wicked and they just want kill him kill him kill him this guy's very sharp he knows exactly what he's doing he's calculating everything and he has reasons for it there are going to be a lot of other world leaders that are going to study benito mussolini and they're going to say wow the way he runs italy is brilliant that's what's funny we don't oftentimes look at that but his organization his discipline the way he's going to do it, well, he's modeling after hitler he's interested it's like hitler the discipline look what he can get out of these troops Look what he can get out of that economy. I mean, he can turn this system around. Fascism is very attractive at this time. And so as a result, you're going to see other countries studying this model, which is, of course, historically speaking, not healthy, right? But at that time, it wasn't as clear. So they're going to look at the parliamentary or the de democratic systems, and they're going to spit on them. They're going to say, there's your problem right there. You're weak because of it. And you can't argue. America's Pacif pacifying everyone at this time. They don't want war. They're in the middle of a Great Depression. America looks pathetic right now. Great Britain, I mean, laugh out loud, ridiculous. And the Italians are mocking the British and the Americans and the French at this time because they have their democracies and their, their, their Anglo-Saxon ideas are going down the toilet in this very generation. That's exactly how the Germans are thinking. That's how Italy is thinking. So in hindsight, we're going to look back and say, Mussolini, you're an idiot. But at the time, he looked very smart. Listen, I'm going to give you just a few quotes just to introduce you to the, the man. We do not argue with those who disagree with us. We destroy them. Huh. Okay. Uh, that shows you a difference right there from a Christian worldview. Okay, right there, you're going to see a difference. Italy, I mean, this is like the house of... Rome, 
right? I mean, Rome is the house of Catholicism. I mean, this is where the Pope hangs out. What is that? Uh huh. You see a disturbing uh, element that has entered in. I have been a racist since 1921. I don't know how they can think I'm imitating Hitler. He's bragging about it. Well, I've been this way the whole time. I know the races that are the plagues and that need to be purified. I've seen that since 1921. Don't think I'm copying Hitler. I'm my own man. <laughs> uh, buddy, you might want to keep that down. That's not going to look good in the year 2020 <laughs> when Eric Ludy sticks it up on the keynote. <laughs> Blood alone literally moves the wheels of history. Yeah. The struggle between the two worlds, fascism and democracy, can permit no compromise. It's either us or them. Hmm. And Galizio, uh, Galeazzo Cicciano, uh, who is his right-hand man, is going to give words to what the government and what Mussolini are going to do. The opportunity to destroy France and Great Britain is, and he is going to say, a chance which comes only once in 5,000 years. And so they're going to jump on it. We have the opportunity to oust Great Britain and France. They're allies. If we side with Hitler right now, let's do it. I mean, this is an opportunity that comes once in every 5,000 years. We can take down the two most powerful nations on earth, France and Great Britain. They're weak right now. And if we join Hitler, we can do this thing. He's building gallows, guys. That's exactly what he's doing. He's establishing an execution device for something in the world that he's jealous of. He always has been jealous of it. He doesn't like the fact that all the world attention goes in that direction. What about Italy? What, what are we, chumps? So the scheme, Mussolini, Mussolini builds the gallows. He joins Hitler. He schemes with Hitler to enter the war and to attack. And Mussolini is going to come against his friends. The awakening. So now I'm skipping a huge amount of time. We went from 1939 and the Pact of Steel to him entering the war in 1940, 41. Then we're going to have the awakening. So the same thing I'm showing in, you know, the king couldn't sleep that night. Well, the same thing is going to happen and Italy couldn't sleep that night. This entire nation is going to begin to question and begin to read their chronicles and go, wait a minute. And they're going to look over across the room at Mussolini and say, you. <laughs> so Operation Torch is November 8th, 1942. That's when the Allies are going to invade North Africa. And Mussolini's uh, Italian corps are going to fall to pieces. Then Operation Husky, July 10th, when they're going to invade Sicily. And they're going to obliterate. The, the Allies start to win. Up to this point, until November 8th, the Allies had not won anything. Actually, it's late, no, late October when they, when, when they won in El Alamein. That's the first time the British are actually going to win a battle in World War II. So you're going to see this shift take place right here. It's an awakening. Now, Mussolini's still there. However, there's a stirring and an awakening because now all of their well-laid plans of saying, oh, Hitler's going to easily win, and as long as we stand with Hitler, we can't lose. Well, Hitler got obliterated in North Africa right along with the Italians. And so as a result, I mean, their strongest element in North Africa, their tank division under Rommel, was defeated. Gulp. And so the Italians are beginning to reevaluate, and they're recognizing that their dictator might not be so smart after all. The Duce, this is Winston Churchill talking, the Duce, who is Mussolini, had now to bear the brunt of the military disasters into which he had, after so many years of rule, led his country. He had exercised almost absolute control and could not cast the burden on the monarchy, parliamentary institutions, the fascist party, or the general staff. All fell on him. Now that the feeling that the war was lost spread throughout well-informed circles in Italy, the blame fell upon the man who had so imperiously thrust the nation onto the wrong and the losing side. It is really interesting because if you study the beginnings of the war, it feels hopeless for the Allies. There is no way that they could win this thing. And Mussolini is growing bigger 
and bigger and bigger. I mean, he has quite the presence in Italy. I mean, just venerated, worshipped, because he is so brilliant in to choose this side and to do this for the Italian people. The Italian people, I mean, it's glory that's awaiting them. I mean, they're going to be able to claim territories that they have never even dreamed of having. And it's for Italy. And so they are, they're loving their, their dictator. But they didn't figure in this. As they're all building the gallows and helping Mussolini build the gallows, they're recognizing this isn't going in the direction that he promised. These convictions formed and spread widely during the early months of 1943. The lonely dictator sat at the summit of power while military defeat and Italian slaughter in Russia, Tunis, Sicily were the evident prelude to direct invasion. And this is still Winston Churchill, by the way. He cherished the illusion of power and consequence when the reality had gone. It's sort of like Haman. It's like, Haman, you're in big trouble. He doesn't know what Esther's doing, but he's still walking around with all his pomp and circumstance. He's still the big guy on the block. He gets to be invited to a party with the king and with the queen. I mean, look how important I am. He has no idea <laughs> that he's going to be hanging on his own gallows soon. So, so durable, however, was the impression of his authority and the fear of his personal action and extremity that there was prolonged hesitation throughout all the forces of Italian society about how to oust him. Who would bell the cat? That's an Aesop fable. Thus the spring had passed with invasion by a mighty foe, possessing superior power by land, sea, and air, drawing ever nearer. Listen to this line. The climax had now come. And I'm not going to tell you uh, anymore. I'll give you a hint before it's over, just in case I want to go into more of the Mussolini story. I'm just going to hold it back because it's good. Of course, some of you could just go home and read it, but it, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, the whole thing is extremely intriguing to me, but the climax had come, and I'm calling this message the fall of Mussolini, so I'm guessing you're, you're catching that. Mussolini isn't going to make it past uh, this whole experience. So the turning, the ousting on July 25th, 1943. This guy is not just dealt with, but he is going to be basically imprisoned, sort of like what they had to do with Napoleon. They have to stick him uh, in a private spot where the Germans don't know where he's at. The Germans want him in control. And so they're going to literally put him in hiding, and the story is, is better than that. But I'm, go I'm going to just leave it at that for now. I, didn't I tell you I wasn't going to give you any, any, anything away, and I've already given something away? So the scheme, we're going to go to a different time period now, and it's AD 33. Now, very likely it wasn't AD 33, but for our sake, knowing that Jesus was 33 years old, we're going to just say AD 33 to give you the idea of what we're talking about here. The scheme, destroy the body of Christ. Now, it's interesting, the way I'm saying that, I'm saying it that way on purpose, because it's the same scheme today. So back then, it was the actual literal body of the man Jesus, but we are that body today. And the scheme is identical. The same scheme that you see Haman running is the same scheme that we see being run in AD 33 is the same scheme that is being run in 2020. Should not shock us. This is how it works. Luke 22:3. then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. The conspiracy begins to unfold. Satan is behind it. It's not just evil men it's evil powers. You see, we, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against Judas's. It's not against Haman's. It's not against Mussolini's. It is against that which is seeking to control them and to work out the enemy's machinations and devices through them. We want to see those people set free. In a sense, it's like Operation See Mussolini Saved. Even though he becomes an embodiment, as does Hitler, of evil, to the point where we're like, oh, he can't be saved. And to the point where even Christians are trying to lay bombs to blow him up because that's the wisest thing we can do. It's like, forget his soul. <laughs> Let's get rid of this guy because he is killing millions. So it's an interesting ethical dilemma that the Christians of those days were dealing with. Then we're going to have the awakening. Remember, the king could not sleep that night. You're going to see something happen in the darkest moment. Because if you're, if you're a believer and you're seeing the things that are happening, you're going to see Jesus get arrested. Whoa. 
you're going to see him so poorly mistreated. You're going to see them choose Barabbas over him. The injustice is off the charts. He's an innocent man, but they are going to try him as a criminal. And they're going to give him the highest level of penalty, execution. Not just that, but by a cross. And they're going to scourge him with a cat of nine tails. The atrocities are so extreme. Meanwhile, it appears God's doing nothing. What's the prayer? Hang Haman on his own gallows. You see, in these times, we need to trust that what looks like an apparent defeat, what looks as if the body of Christ is going down, is actually the opposite. Now, we know the story of the cross, so as a result, when I say that, you're like, well, yeah, but, but. No, no, there's no but. This is how it works. You see, as the church of Jesus Christ, we stand faithful and true to the word of God, no matter what. And even when Lazarus dies, we stand true. He said the sickness will not end in death. You sure does look like it did. We stand firm, knowing that God's ends are always triumph. And right now, we need to stand firm as the body of Christ. The enemy will not get the last laugh. The enemy will not triumph in this engagement. He will not defeat the body of Christ. Matthew 27, 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Even the Gentiles are recognizing something. There is a stirring. And of course, it gets even better than that. It's not just that he made a statement when he died, but something is happening, just like Esther behind the scenes. Haman doesn't see it. But behind the scenes, something is taking place. There's a rumbling There was a victory on that day. In that moment of seeming defeat, there was a grand victory, a triumph. Satan, his head crushed, sin and death disposed of, the flesh crucified. What we see is a turning even when we couldn't see it. We, with our spiritual eyes as we study Scripture, recognize that in the darkest moment, God was doing his best work. We as Christians understand that. We recognize when you study Mussolini, he's an intimidating character. And if you're an Italian, you're intimidated by Mussolini. He has all power. He is a dictator of dictators. This man is powerful. Now, he's going to go down in history as a pawn of Hitler. He's going to go down in history appearing weak because he's going to lose. But if you were living in those days, you would have trembled before Mussolini, a brilliant man. And he was, uh, he did not hesitate to kill his opponents. And so as a result, he had power. And he had the dread, fear, honor, respect of all those around him. So there was only one worse man in Europe, and that was the one he sort of trembled before. And that was Hitler. These two make a menacing couple, believe me. And yet, though we can't see what is actually taking place, we need to recognize, surely the Son of God is at work right now. Surely. You see, though the enemy is conspiring to destroy the church right now, I mean, I can follow trends. I can say A plus B equals this. I see what's doing. This dot plus this dot to this dot. Whoa, where does that lead us? If it keeps going in this direction, I see exactly what's happening. Sure. However, we as Christians don't fear dots being connected unto these ends. If anything, the enemy should fear the church. We are the great threat. When Pearl Harbor was bombed, the Japanese recognized that they may have made a mistake. I think we have just awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a, what was it, a terrible resolve? Is that what it is? Yeah. That's what's going on inside of Eric Ludi. I, I find such a strength. Here, just listen to some of my thinking, okay? I mean, I am stirred to the point where I'm having a normal conversation with Leslie, and she's like, you need to tone it down a bit. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm like in fight mode. I really am. The body of Christ, when it gathers, 
brings health. Think about this. What does the word of God say? When we gather together, people come to life. People are made whole. People are made healthy. The church of Jesus Christ does not bring disease. It brings health and strength to any culture it's in. We are being deluded into this notion that we can't function for fear that we would bring harm to the world around us. When in actuality, the word of God states the precise opposite. So you see a terrible resolve, actually, a righteous resolve inside of me to say, all right, now I've already been in this position. So you'd say, Eric, what's the difference? I don't know. There's, there's more oomph behind it. There is more resolve behind it to say, I am not taking this sitting down. Hang Haman on his gallows. The gallows that he's building for the church I want this evil to be exposed. I want these lies to be exposed. I want fear to be crippled. Perfect love casts it out. If the church functions as the church functions, we're not against people, but we are against principalities. And so as a result, as we posture ourselves, as we position ourselves, the healthiest place on earth is right smack in the middle of the body of Christ. Always has been, always will be. In a time of plague and pestilence, the safest place is in Christ. That's what, during the bubonic plague, that's what you'll hear Charles Spurgeon preach. That's what you'll see demonstrated. Those that would go in amongst the plague victims actually were preserved so that they could serve. A thousand will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Whatever happened to the historic church, functioning as the historic church, right now, we need it. The turning. Uh-oh, guys. Uh-oh. Earthquake. Stone rolls away. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Well, where's Haman? He's hanging on the cross, or on the gallows. <laughs> well, just as God said. You see, this is a signal of triumph. God is God. He lives. He ever lives. But he has brought an end to this grand opponent. We as the church are after souls right now. We're not after our own self-preservation. We're not looking to hoard toilet paper for ourselves. We are interested in winning souls right now. We are being told that we can't. This is where we must evaluate how we are going to live. Is he risen or not? I know what it looks like, but Esther is in position. I know how Haman's bragging, but God is going to take those very gallows and he is going to hang this fear. He's going to hang this lawlessness. He is going to hang this delusion upon it. Now, I can't say that we will not suffer before all of it is seen in the end. But I do know the end. And I do know the final chapter. And I do know who comes out victorious. And it is not Haman. Jesus Christ is our king. We trust him right now. And we bend our knee before him, declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we look up into his face. He smiles. And we say, but but God, the nations of the earth are conspiring against you. And we see something. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. So what should, if this is his body, <laughs> the body of Christ, and this is his mouth, well, I think I should have his laugh. I think I should have his smirk right now. I think I should have his calm and confidence inside of me. I think I should have his mindset towards all of it. Why would I have the mindset of this earth when I am a child of the Most High God and I have been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so I could look upon the things of earth with his lens? The fall of Mussolini is imminent. Our prayer 
hang Haman on his own gallows. Thank you, Gretchen. It's a great prayer. October 13th, 1943. This is incredible, guys. I mean, this is extraordinary. This nation that is going to betray the Allies, Mussolini, who is going to seem to be impenetrable, unstoppable, as he is sided with this evil Hitler, and Hitler has not been stopped until Stalingrad, which I still have not covered, he is never going to lose anything. And suddenly, all at once, you're going to see the turning. In 1943, you're going to see the turning of World War II. And Italy, I mean, shocker of shockers, is going to oust Mussolini. And then, I, need, I don't want to give too much away, because this is a good story in and of itself. But on October 13th, 1943, Italy turns on Hitler. They repent. They declare war on Germany. They don't just become neutral. They declare war on Germany and officially join the good guys. That's an amazing turn, guys. What we see is everything flips. This is God's way. I can't tell you how it's going to unfold in America. In certain regards, it's probably good for us to go through a pretty elongated season of suffering before we finally wake up. We got some spots and wrinkles in our bridal garments. And there's nothing quite like a little persecution, a little difficulty, a little suffering to get it out. Hot iron. And yet, I know what God's ends are. I know what he's doing. Lord, accomplish that. Father, here we are, your body. Fill us with a righteous resolve to stand firm in this hour, in this generation, to represent your truth no matter what comes with it. Lord Jesus, we belong to you. Give us a burden and a heart for the lost souls around us right now. Give us a burden and a heart for the very ones that are perpetrating this against us. Lord Jesus, may we cast out this fear with your perfect love. We trust you, Lord. We await that next chapter where all of it turns. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.